FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And so we start another week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you for joining us for our show today. Um, Of course, we're keeping our eye on Brunswick, Georgia, and the federal hate crimes trial uh, of the men who murdered Ahmaud Arbery. Um, As most of you know, the jury got that case on Friday, uh, about mid-afternoon. Today is their first full day of deliberations. As we come to you at 9 o'clock, Obviously, they've just come back into the courthouse, um, but we'll watch uh, closely to see how that unfolds throughout the day. And, and we'll talk a little bit about closing arguments that were made in that trial on Friday with our panel. Uh, so let's get right to the panel. Uh, it's Tuesdays, which means Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Hi, Tamar. How are you? Hey, Bill. Always good to be here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We're also joined by State Senator Sonia Halpern, who represents a portion of Buckhead, among other uh, uh, parts of that uh, area of the city. Sonia, I always prefer to have uh, representative senators describe their districts in their own words than my doing it on your behalf. So how do you describe the district you represent? Uh, good morning. I'm glad to be with you today. I describe my district as looking like a snake and after redistricting a snake with an open mouth. <laughs> so I snake right through <laughs> the heart of Atlanta, including wonderful neighborhoods, Buckhead, Midtown, Westside, Southwest Atlanta, on down to College Park, East Point, City of South Fulton, and a little bit of Union City. Uh, so it is it is maybe 20 five miles or so north to south, but it's a north to south district making right through the heart of Atlanta. I love the way you describe the district with such enthusiasm and almost <laughs> joyfully. So, I know. <laughs> and, I, and then I didn't tell you the open mouth is now Morningside. <laughs> so, Atlantic oh, okay. Park. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Thank you for describing it that uh, vividly. Uh, Edward Lindsay is with us, former state representative uh, who represented the city of Atlanta during his tenure uh, and is now a partner who runs the the Georgia uh, government affairs practice for, wait for it, Denton's, the world's largest law firm. Edward, how are you? Thank you for having me. Glad you're with us today. And we're welcoming back uh, Howard Franklin, who hasn't been with us for a while. He was off busy running Andre Dickens' mayoral campaign and then overseeing as vice as one of two chairs of the transition uh, when Dickens was elected. Um, of course, Howard is the founder, president, and CEO of Ohio River South, which does a great deal of government affairs work and political consulting as well. Howard you must be uh, riding pretty high having gone through that campaign in which Andre Dickens was started out as an underdog and obviously ended up victorious. Yeah, I mean, you know, I could try to describe it. It's, it's been a whirlwind, but it's been a lot of fun. Uh, as you know and others know, it's kept a lot of us very busy. And now, uh, 
like a lot of us, I'm just excited about the future of the city and seeing a mayor rolling up his sleeves every single day to tackle the problems that people are concerned about. So uh, I'm sure we can talk about this all day, but I look forward to weaving it into the discussion on the show today. Well, actually, let's start uh, with a little bit about what's going on with the um, Buckhead City movement and the way in which the mayor has tried to counter those who are looking uh, for independence. We know that uh, at this moment, uh, the effort is dead. We have both Jeff Duncan in the Senate and uh, David Ralston in the House essentially saying we're not going anywhere with this for the rest of this session at least. Um, Ralston particularly, though, Howard, said we want to give Mayor Dickens a chance to deal with the crime problem before we take any further action. Talk to us about what that means from your point of view. Yeah, I mean, it means so many things. I know we're going to talk a little bit later about the fact that this is the city's first ever Peace Week, and then a number of initiatives have been undertaken by this mayor and his administration uh, really to help folks, you know, reach solutions for nonviolent conflict resolution and really just lift up some of the ways uh, that we're supporting uh, the men and women in blue. But this mayor, this administration has already done a ton to address public safety and to really bolster the fight against crime. Uh, they're working really hard to increase recruitment, both in the size of the recruit and cadet classes, as well as um, lateral recruitment from other police departments. Um, I think two or three weeks into um, his first month, Mayor Dickens actually opened up the cadet housing, affordable housing for cadets who were oftentimes traveling from other places, couch surfing or trying to figure out, effectively homeless, right? People who had were going through the... Uh, the police training process, but didn't have permanent housing in the city of Atlanta. So just one, removing just one more barrier out of getting you know, qualified men and women on the streets to protect us. Um, they're also really redirecting a lot of financial resource to bolster uh, the, our public safety response. I mean, I could, I could bore your listeners with a bunch of the nuance and detail, but there's been a tremendous amount done even to address morale. The mayor's basically gone to every roll call or every um, – Every one of the six zones across the city of Atlanta, going to 7.30 a.m. and afternoon roll calls, meeting with officers, talking about their issues um, in every way. I mean, we know that public safety and the crime wave uh, is really one of the most important existential threats to all of our cities, especially in Atlanta. And I think our mayor has shown up, rolled up his sleeves and shown himself you know, ready and willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with our men and women in blue and with all the other partners who help keep the city safe. Tamar, uh, you've been covering uh, a, a, a lot of this, especially uh, looking at Bill White uh, and his efforts uh, to uh, lead the anti uh, to, to lead the effort to create the independent city of Buckhead, uh, and, and we know that to some extent, uh, Bill White made a couple of false moves that probably really doomed the movement this session. But but let me ask you, and you're welcome to comment on that. But let me ask you a different question about that. You know, when we hear somebody like uh, Speaker Ralston say, well, we want to give Mayor Dickens a chance to get crime under control, um, that makes sense. But it strikes me that there's something that doesn't quite square in that equation. And, and the reason I say that is, is there was never anything that those leaders of the independent city movement did that suggested they knew how to stop crime in Buckhead in a way that the leaders of the city of Atlanta uh, uh, couldn't. Yes? 
I mean, one of the major planks of their their platform was that they were going to significantly beef up uh, the police presence in Buckhead. So that was kind of the main component of how they're going to stop crime was, you know, fill these new precincts with with law enforcement and pay them well. And and that was that to me seemed like the main plank of of what they were doing. I think a key kind of victory for Andre Dickens or kind of a, a main kind of component of his success in getting this movement killed, at least for the next year, was that he really did spend the first couple weeks of his administration building a ton of bridges with with powerful folks in the legislature. Uh, my colleagues wrote a story that ran on the front page this Sunday, kind of looking at how Dickens and other folks, other opponents of this movement did it. And one of the first calls he made hours after he was elected was to call David Ralston and kind of say, hey, I want to work with you on this. You know, he built bridges with Governor Kemp, with Jeff Duncan, uh, with a lot of folks that um, had a lot of power in situations like that, who maybe, you know, the outgoing mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, didn't have as great of a relationship, especially toward the end of her uh, of her tenure. And so I think that really helped a lot. And uh, the meantime, you had Bill White, the leader of the Buckhead Cityhood movement, who made a ton of enemies, especially on his social media feeds, where he would trash talk any opponent, uh, call people really ugly names. And then, of course, kind of the the final straw that broke the camel's back, his tweet, uh, you know, tweeting a really ugly conspiracy theory about the death of uh, the suicide of Jeffrey Parker, the MARTA CEO, who is very much beloved in the Capitol. Um, Sonia, uh, since you represent a portion of Buckhead, I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this in general. But but I also would be interested in hearing what you think about the fact that last week the Buckhead Independence uh, Committee held a news conference and they reaffirmed their commitment to Bill White as their leader moving forward. I, I have to wonder, though, and I'll ask you this, Sonia, and then Edward Lindsay, too. I have to wonder if Bill White's days aren't numbered, uh, given the uh, problems that he created for that movement. Yeah, I, I was surprised a bit by that press conference. I would have thought that after it was clear that the movement is dead for this session, and after the missteps that we've already discussed that Bill White has made, that in fact they reaffirmed that they want him leading this effort. I, I I don't know quite what to make of that myself. I, I think, you know, for folks who want to get something done, this does not seem like the right pathway. I'm glad for that. I am one of those people who is against the idea of dividing our city. So I think that taking a pause on this for this session, allowing a new administration to actually get to work as the mayor has already done, really is the right way to have a clear-headed assessment. Not to mention the fact, by the way, that all of the questions that we you know, put out there as the things that, that needed to be considered if you're splitting a city have yet to really be addressed or answered by the proponents. Those are still outstanding as unanswered questions. Well, Bill, uh, you know, first off, before I say anything, in the interest of full disclosure, I um, I do co-chair an organization called the Committee for United Atlanta, and I've been retained to uh, to try and uh, and stop the Buckhead City movement at the General Assembly, and, and quite frankly, to work toward uh, solutions to Atlanta's problems that involves us coming together rather than being cut apart. So, first off, on that. I'm not surprised that that Bill White uh, is staying on as the head of it, because the fact of the matter is Bill White is the movement. Uh, Before Bill White, uh, this was um, uh, just a small collection of individuals uh, that that wanted to split apart. Uh, That 
has been around in Buckhead for 20 or 30 years. But Bill White, uh, who is a master at fundraising and organizing, um, you know, came in and built this movement. Uh, he, a lot of things that he has done as part of that have been very disturbing to a lot of us. But the fact of the matter is, he is this movement. And so I really couldn't foresee any possibility that he would uh, be asked to step aside or that he would volunteer to step aside. Um, the fact of the matter is that the heart and soul of why the General Assembly is is delaying uh, this issue uh, and going to give the new mayor a, a, another year is because of this mayor who has gotten off to a, a very good start. He's done a lot of things right that have made people say, okay, let's give him a second chance, including folks in Bucket. Uh, you know, we ran a poll uh, recently uh, that shows that uh, 50 percent of the 50 percent approval rating and only about a 14 percent disapproval rating in Buckhead uh, because of his early efforts. That's a that's quite frankly a flip from his predecessor who was viewed extremely negatively in Buckhead. Uh, he has made some first good steps in terms of building bridges with the General Assembly, uh, laying out some uh, early programs that he wants to pursue. But quite frankly, the key thing for folks to remember is that this was a reprieve by the General Assembly and not an end of the issue. Uh, a lot of folks uh, want to see some very legitimate concerns addressed by this administration, including tackling crime, uh, dealing with uh, the quality of services in the city of Atlanta, dealing with zoning issues and that sort of things that helped, uh, that helped Bill White. Uh, create this movement, and they want to see substantive changes. And we look forward to working with this mayor uh, to see that those uh, necessary changes in course take place. Um, you know, I want to piggyback a little bit off what Edward was saying in terms of kind of, you know, he said he wasn't surprised that that kind of Bill White was was has been retained to to stay on, um, and he really does have an uncanny ability to fundraise. He's done this for, for 30 years kind of professionally in New York where he was uh, raising millions of dollars for veterans' causes. He became a huge uh, political bundler and fundraiser for, for different candidates over the years. And, you know, he has helped elevate this movement from something that was kind of a small effort in living rooms kind of here and there in Buckhead to one that raised almost $2 million over the course of the last year. So he's he's great at fundraising. He's a master at getting media attention and just intention in general, um, especially through his social media feeds. And I think another component of his success um, is, is that he doesn't really care about mm. kind of the status quo in, in Buck, or not the status quo, but kind of the, the power centers in Buckhead and the way that things have always been done traditionally. He doesn't care if he calls people names, if he offends longtime power brokers in the neighborhood. He's just not as embedded in, into that community as maybe a lot of people who maybe have kids who go to school there who'd be scared about kind of rattling their neighbors or, you know, they have employers who'd be upset if they were being very vocal about that. You know, he's mentioned that he's kind of free from a lot of those constraints. And so that, that allows him to be more out front about it. Um, on the other hand, there are plenty of allies of the Buckhead Cityhood movement who've been kind of privately saying, you know, we could support this if Bill would be out, if he would at least step away mm -hmm. a little bit from this leadership role. So that surprised me in a way. But on the other hand, you know, he brought attention and money and momentum to this movement in a way that I think the vast majority of people could not. Uh, Howard, uh, how does Mayor Dickens balance uh, the uh, needs of people in other parts of the city, 
southwest Atlanta, southeast Atlanta. Crime is certainly not a Buckhead issue only. And he has had to uh, put an enormous focus on Buckhead because of the independence movement. Um, How has he been able to reassure people in other sections of the city that he is aware of their needs for better public safety as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, literally his first week on the job is when he literally took to the streets, went to every zone across the city, talked to zone commanders, to beat patrol officers about the issues they were seeing, about the need for better equipment and vehicles, uh, et cetera. Uh, I I neglected to mention that he did, uh, uh, I think that same week, also announced the opening of a Buckhead Mini or police precinct as well. I I think what he's done as mayor, and it's just been a little under two months, is exactly how he was successful um, as a candidate. You know, we didn't spend um, all of our time in one part of the city, even though there were plenty of folks We've got lots of political wisdom who thought we should just go to a base and focus there. And I think one of the, the strengths that probably is little or rarely mentioned is the fact that Andre Dickens, his first time out on the first ballot general election, actually did not win a single city council district of all 12 on the first ballot. But he still found a way to get to second place. And that's because he did really well, a lot of second and third place finishes all across the city. Uh, fast forward 28 days to the runoff, and he won 10 out of 12 council districts and was pretty competitive, 36 37% in Buckhead, a place we thought that a lot of folks thought we wouldn't do well at all. And so it really spoke to his willingness uh, to go to anywhere there was a challenge or an issue. And I think also the eight years where he had really been an active uh, city council member and responding to issues and challenges all across the city, not just sticking to one part of the city. Thank you for that. Uh, Sonia, in an effort to try to put another nail in the coffin of the Buckhead City movement, uh, (laughs) State Representative Dave Belton has now introduced uh, legislation uh, that would prevent new cities from incorporating with a name similar to that of an existing city. We already know there is a Buckhead, uh, Georgia. Uh, east uh, along I-20, uh, they've been complaining out there that they've been they were incorporated decades ago, um, and now uh, Representative Belton. It's a slightly mischievous move, but it's a pretty interesting way to try to uh, force the folks who want independence to look for a different name. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the this is the really interesting thing about this Buckhead City movement is that it is it is rankling all different kinds of people for all different kinds of reasons, and certainly the folks uh, who represent the current Buckhead and folks who live in the current Buckhead don't, you know, they don't take kindly to the idea of this one trying to usurp their name. Um, I think that there are other bills also that are being uh, introduced around how. This kind of thing should happen if it were to happen. Um, I'm going to speak principally around the idea of uh, the fact that usually only the area that is getting incorporated would get the chance to vote. There are bills that have already been introduced that would say no. If you're de-annexing from an existing city, everybody who would be impacted would have to vote. So there are those kinds of bills. There are a number of different pieces of legislation that are growing legs around this central issue of what would we allow for this neighborhood to leave uh, the city of Atlanta? Well, to build on, on both what, what Sonia and Howard were talking about, 
this is not just a, a Buckhead issue. And, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't impact just Buckhead, whether or not they create a city. It impacts everyone in the city of Atlanta. So, too, are the issues that I talked about a moment ago that folks in Buckhead are concerned about. It is it is wrong and horrible and should never happen that someone walking down West Wesley should be shot by simply walking down. Nor should a child riding the backseat of her mother's car on University Avenue uh, be shot. Nor should anyone within our city uh, face this kind of random violence that's seen over the last couple of years. So the issue of crime is not an issue that is an issue of just Buckhead alone. Everyone within the city of Atlanta is. And that's why, you know, we need a sort of a unified approach to take care of it. Same thing with the quality of city services. Everyone in the city of Atlanta deserves uh, better quality services than we saw over the last couple of years. And a lot of the other issues involved, I mean, a lot of folks in Buckhead raised the issue of this uh, proposal regarding zoning. That issue was taken on uh, directly by folks who opposed it. Uh, throughout the city of Atlanta, in neighborhoods from Buckhead to South Atlanta to East and West Atlanta, all came to the city council and said this was a horrible idea and stop it dead cold. And it was stopped dead cold. So, you know, we, we need to we need to move beyond, you know, Buckhead. And, you know, those of us from this area are particularly concerned about it. But we need to look at it holistically and, and try to come up with solutions, rather do come up with solutions. Uh, that uh, that have a positive impact of everyone who lives within this city. Okay, uh, thank you for a good conversation about uh, Buckhead um, and uh, Howard for giving us a little bit more on uh, Mayor Andre Dickens, who's going to be fascinating to watch in his uh, tenure as mayor of Atlanta. Let's do this. Let's get the first break of the show out of the way right now and come back. Because, as usual, I have way too much to talk about. We'll never get to everything, but we'll do our best to get to the most important items uh, we're going to look at today. This is Political Rewind. (music) Senator Sonia Halpern, Howard Franklin, Edward Lindsay, Tamar Hallerman join us for today's Political Rewind. Um, Tomorrow, I thought we'd look at a couple of the measures that are um, uh, percolating down at the Capitol that we haven't addressed on Political Rewind, but are definitely in the mix down there and worth our consideration. And some of them are, once again, kind of culture war issues, hot-button issues that you have to think Republicans have introduced as election year measures. One of those being, and I'm certainly glad to listen to anyone who wants to take issue with the way I just characterized it. Uh, the bill I'm about to talk about. Um, there's a, once again this year, tomorrow, a bill that would force uh, students to uh, participate in sports according to the gender on their birth certificate. Of course, it's aimed at transgender students who would not be able to um, participate in a sport based on the uh, gender that they have transitioned to. The backers of the bill say it makes for a level playing field. It's fairer. Um, someone who uh, was uh, born uh, uh, has a birth certificate showing him as a boy who becomes a woman is going to have different strengths. The critics say, of course, this is just a, a hot button issue which marginalizes transgendered people. What do you? What do you want to? How do you want to weigh in on that tomorrow? 
Sure. And I mean, specifically, we're talking about transgender girls. Um, you know, and they, they talk about girls sports being something that really helps empower girls. And so if you're letting, um, you know, if you're letting transgender girls play on girls sports teams, um, you know, they might perform better than, than, um, you know, people who, you know, than, you know, than girls. And so they, they talk about it as a way to kind of help with the self-confidence of, of girls. But of course, this is an issue that's been playing out in state legislatures across the country. Um, at least a dozen states have passed some version of this. I know that they've been tied up in court. Um, one thing that opponents like to talk about, um, you know, opponents of these measures is that, you know, the Olympics and collegiate sports have found a way to allow transgender girls or transgender women to compete. Um, if they can find a way to do that, why can't high schools find a way to, to do that as well? A lot of regulations will say you're allowed to compete in, in women's sports as a transgender woman if you've been on hormones for a year or kind of something along those lines. Why can't we find something like this? In the meantime, you're unfairly punishing transgender girls. And, you know, this is already a group that's very marginalized, um, who are at an extremely higher risk of suicide and depression and anxiety. Um, why further stigmatize this? Of course, you know, this should be noted that a similar version of this bill was introduced last year in the Georgia legislature. It did not advance beyond the committee stage. Uh, the difference, though, is that now this is an election year. We have a really testy primary battle uh, between Brian Kemp and David Perdue, uh, with both of them trying to prove that they, you know, are more conservative, that they can appeal to their base. And so this, of course, is a red meat issue um, for conservatives. And so that's, I think, why we're seeing this bubble up now. Yeah, last year, so I sit on the Senate Health um, Education and Youth Committee. And last year, we did hear that bill and it passed. Um, the difference between last year's bill and this year's bill, which has also now passed along party lines out of the Education and Youth Committee, um, is that this year's bill um, goes both ways. So it doesn't matter if you're a transgender girl or if you're a transgender boy, you must play in the sport you were assigned to at birth. So it, it, um, it differs from last year's bill in that regard, even though they're still calling it the quote-unquote Safety in Girls Sports Act or Saving Girls Sports Act. Um, I think principally... Um, the challenge is that this bill is really only focused on the competition part of sports and ignores every other aspect of sports and what we all know sports do, which is around teamwork and cooperation and building social circles and that kind of a thing. And so I, you know, I think that history, if this bill moves forward and actually gets signed into law, I think history, history is going to show us to be very short-sighted in passing this. Um, one of the things that I just think is underlying the challenge here is generational. It just is. I, I think when my parents were young, you know, the question was, can you marry somebody of a different race? In my generation, the question was really more, you know, do I like boys? Do I like girls? Right? This generation, it is a completely different question. And the question really is, who am I? And how do I actualize that? And I think in time, as we, all of us come to understand that better and grow in our understanding of that, we will see where bills like this are, I mean, even right now today on its face, it's hurtful, it's heavy handed, it's detrimental and mean spirited. 
But I think we will see that we are we are we are running towards something that's not really even a large scale issue. We had mothers who have transgender daughters playing in sports who came to testify and said, what about my daughter? And what is my daughter then supposed to do? And I just, I think this is one of those areas where codifying into state law what is allowed or not in this is taking an issue that, that is not even pervasive and, and being, like I said, heavy-handed. I think this is a place where really we should let local school districts determine what they're going to do. Howard, to uh, uh, give him uh, a, a chance to uh, make a statement about this, uh, State Senator Marty Harbin, uh, who introduced this legislation, uh, says it champions fairness. Quote, it is simply not fair to force biological girls to compete against biological boys. At stake, he said, is, quote, a chance for character building, athletic accomplishments, and invaluable scholarship opportunities. Howard? Yeah, I have to agree with Senator Halpern here. This is a very short-sighted approach. It's really, it's a solution in search of a problem. This is not some widespread issue. You know, you would think with the thousands of bills that get filed every year and, you know, the hundreds of elected officials, they, you can find real problems that are really in need of creativity and solutions uh, underneath the gold dome. I, I think, the you know, to the senator's point, uh, it only con- contemplates the competitive aspect of sports, it, it does so much uh, or so much of a disservice to all the other ways that sports is enriching and, uh, you know, and, and helpful to the development of our children. I've got a kid, my, my uh, oldest, who is a cross-country runner, and, you know, when I go catch him at practices, it's the boys and the girls running together. And, you know, again, I, I don't pretend to be an expert on this on this subject, but I know just the camaraderie he's built around this experience is invaluable, whether or not it lands in the scholarship. But I just I think that to the extent that there are good faith actors trying to do something about it, something they perceive to be a real issue, I hope that they, you know, are listening to these discussions and trying to find ways to keep kids active in sports without penalizing those uh, who, who want to play for a different team. Edward, your final thoughts before we move on. Well, at the end of the day, this is not so much a legal issue as it is a science and medical issue uh, as to what uh, is the, um, the balance between some, uh, a child's need and, and encouragement and our need to encourage them to participate in sports and what is fair for everyone who's participating in the sport. Um, I have been pleased to see that in recent years we have shown greater awareness as to uh, the, the gender issue. I think most folks in our country today would not be in favor of any kind of discrimination towards someone uh, who is um, who is transitioning in terms of gender uh, when it comes to employment or housing or or public services and that sort of thing. Uh, I was pleased that uh, Georgia's hate crime bill is actually one of the most progressive in the country when it comes to recognizing gender as one of the categories we need to be concerned about when it comes to uh, hate crimes. Uh, this issue, like I said, begs for folks to step back and, and look at the science and look at the medical and, and not simply try to uh, come up with an iron-clad uh, line but, uh, by law. And so I certainly hope that folks uh, will sort of step back 
Um, I'm not sure if uh, if the various entities from the Olympics on down to high school sports have got it right yet, but uh, but uh, let's let 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 these various entities try to work it out uh, first before we start imposing uh, widespread laws. I'm 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 one of these conservatives out here who believes that uh, that be careful what you pass because most of the problems today are the result of. Um, solutions yesterday and so let's always be cautious in terms of the laws that we pass and this may be one of those Tomorrow. categories Tomorrow. and i mean but at the same time you have to think of kind of where this issue falls in the context of the political discussion and how much the culture wars are such an animating um you know, thing for, for both parties, but especially for conservatives, where especially because things are so changing so fast when especially it comes to acceptance publicly of LGBTQ people, um, this is such an easy way to win points with your kind of conservative base, um, kind of similar to what we're seeing this session with abortion and with guns. Um, so this kind of plays right into that discussion. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, let's look at another measure that uh, uh, is worth talking about for at least a couple minutes. We haven't talked about it during the show. Um, gambling is back on the agenda in the legislature this session. There are some efforts to say maybe what we need to do is pass a general measure which would give Georgians the right to vote on whether they want to legalize gambling in Georgia and then come back and decide what that form of gambling should be. Should it be sports betting? Should it be paramutual wagering uh, at, at track? Should it be casinos or the like? Uh, Edward Lindsay, certainly this is an issue you dealt with during your time down at the legislature. And now um, horse race gambling got a little bit of a boost because of a study by Georgia Southern University, which says that if you had horse racing, paramutual wagering in Georgia, it could raise as much as $1.8 billion a year for uh, the state. Of course, Edward, Brandon Beach has been pushing that, promoting that for as long as I can remember. Um, talk about what you think about any effort to pass gambling and, and how it might happen this session, Edward. Well, and first off, and before Brandon Beach, there was my good friend, the late uh, Representative Harry Geisinger. Uh, who, who was promoting this issue for a long time. Uh, you know, the, the, there are a lot of different issues involved when it comes to gaming. Uh, my best guess, if I was to make one at this point, is that a narrow bill dealing with sports betting probably has the best chance of passing this year. A broader gaming bill uh, will would be harder to pass. I think someday it will pass. Uh, the question is, among the various different competing folks under the gold dome, how do you uh, distribute the various revenue that's collected uh, and and spend it wisely? But at some point, we are going to pass uh, a broad gaming bill and bring gaming here into Georgia, as other states around us have done. Uh, but this year, my if I look into the crystal ball, it's a little foggy, but I would say that sports gaming would be the one that has the best bet. Uh, before we could pass a, a broad uh, bill. Um, I know, and, you however, know, Howard, that my good friend, the Speaker, uh, wants a more broad bill, so let's just see what happens. I, I apologize for interrupting you. You know, you know, Howard, first of all, we should say that virtually any form of gambling, sports betting, casinos, whatever, could come together with an economic impact statement that would show the enormous financial benefits to legalize them. So I get that. 
But this just happens to be one that maybe gives those horse race advocates a little momentum in the session. But, Howard, let's talk politics here. In, in an election year, is it really likely that uh, legislators, Republicans, are going to pass a gambling measure of any sort, given the conservative Christian vote is out there waiting to cast ballots in the primary and general election? You know, my, my initial inclination is to say not a chance, but I have to agree with Edward. Um, you know, there's a real meaningful distinction between some of the esports gambling, uh, daily uh, fantasy sports uh, proposals, and uh, brick-and-mortar uh, casino gaming or paramutual gaming. And really, there's two meaningful distinctions. Generally, I'd agree with you. I think that, you know, in an election year like this one, there are a lot of reasons why uh, a traditional casino gaming bill wouldn't pass. But for esports, two reasons. One, it's already happening, and those dollars aren't being taxed. The business is not being regulated, and there are plenty of, you know, places uh, that could benefit from a seven- or eight-figure cash infusion to improve the outcomes of the lives of Georgians. And then two, um, the way it's been proposed, esports gaming would be regulated by the Georgia Lottery Corporation, therefore not requiring uh, the constitutional majority necessary to get to casino gaming. So the, the way it's been contemplated, uh, you could get to esports gaming without the two-thirds majority of both houses in the General Assembly. So for those two reasons, I think esports gaming stands alone. And I think also because of the, the tendency toward moderation, and trying new things most of the time, um, I think you could easily see esports being the first um, in this step toward what, what Edward mentioned, which is a longer-term uh, strategy to finally get to casino gaming, um, you know, some years down the road. And, and Sonia, we, can, we thought sports betting just might get through last session when the leaders of the Braves, the Hawks, and the Falcons all came together uh, to say they supported the effort. We did a show with the general managers of all three of those organizations saying it's time to do this, and yet it's stalled. What, what are your thoughts about this session? Well, yeah, I think the fact that we had those conversations last session, so there's lead-in into this year, actually helps the, the, the case. I feel a lot like um, Howard, that the online sports setting, there's, there's meat there. I will say that on this issue of gambling in general, this is one of those issues where in order to pass and get the support, it has to be bipartisan. There are enough folks, both Democrats and Republicans, no matter what the, what the format is, that are gonna always vote against it. So it requires Democrats and Republicans together to get any of this done. Um, the conversation stalled last year, um, but but I know I know that they kind of continue in the background. I don't I don't have a guess yet as to the will of kind of Republican leadership in really pressing this forward. It's been really quiet. I would have thought that by now that I would have even heard some more rumblings about it. It's sitting on the House side. It did pass out of the Senate, um, but there doesn't seem to be too much movement yet. But we've got quite a number of days yet before we're going to get to the end of this session. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back and pick up a few more issues on this edition of Political Rewind. (music) 
I just want to take a quick moment to thank all of you who sent me notes about the conversation with Andy Young that we played uh, yesterday, looking at his life and career from his days as a young boy in New Orleans all the way up till today. I said on the show that I got to know Andy almost 40 years ago when I covered him as mayor uh, when he was mayor of Atlanta. And fortunately, and for whatever reason, he and I became good friends. And I think that had a lot to do with the kind of casual nature of the conversation. So thank you for writing to say you liked it. And if you didn't hear it, you can uh, subscribe to the Political Rewind podcast and find it there or listen to it at gpb.org slash PR. It really is a fun conversation with uh, a, a truly great man. Okay, let's keep going on today's Political Rewind. Um Tamar Hallerman, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, just a little setup on this. Uh, last session, legislative leaders, Republicans, uh, passed a bill signed by Kemp into law that uh, created these so-called leadership committees, which um, allowed people like the governor, the Speaker of the House, and a few others in the legislature to bypass the usual rules of not being able to raise money during a session and gave them the freedom to create committees that could do just that. Uh, uh, many people, some Democrats in, in, were involved with that too, but there were a lot of criticisms out there. There was a court case. Judge said, you know, you can't use this money, Brian Kemp, during a primary against David Perdue, but you can use it in the general. Meanwhile, there is now a bill it, that has been introduced uh, which would prevent the opponents of incumbents, uh, Stacey Abrams, for example, from raising money during the session, uh, the advocates of the bill claim that's leveling the playing field. Tamar? <laughs> sure. And it's it's an interesting issue because it's bringing together, you know, David Perdue and Stacey Abrams, you know, two people who yeah. <laughs> sure, sure, certainly have not hesitated to hit one another uh, against Brian Kemp and all of this. And they, they definitely call it an incumbent protection act. And they talk about how unfair this is. So it'll it'll be kind of interesting to see, um, you know, how quickly this is able to get through the legislature, especially given how um, critical this uh, campaign year is going to be. Howard, I, I've been surprised by just how many people have contacted us at Political Rewind in learning first about the leadership committees and saying, how can this happen? This is completely unfair to give an advantage to, say, the governor of the state in raising money. Um, I don't know whether it's unfair or not. It's certainly a smart political tactic. Um, but now the effort to stop the challengers from raising money um, is going to be uh, met with the same kind of criticism by some. Yeah, I think it's an interesting discussion. And, you know, worth noting that it's not a discussion that started this year. As you noted, uh, it's, you know, we just got to the place legislatively where these leadership committees were allowed and were written into law just one year ago. Uh, so it looks like there still needs to be some fine-tuning and some tweaking. One thing I will say for incumbent members of the General Assembly, you know, many of whom we are, are expecting – or has already announced that their intentions to run for higher office or to retire. But for those who run for higher office, they oftentimes have a decision to make. Should you stay in the General Assembly, you know, still uh, weigh in on uh, legislative proposals, command uh, potentially media attention, or, you know, uh, find yourself invited to different types of events because you are still serving in the capacity? Or should you leave the General Assembly, step away and focus full-time on the campaign? And I do think there are, you know, benefits to either side 
of that equation. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure that I think it's leveling the, play, the playing field to, to say to a non-elected person who's running for an office, you can't raise money for these three months like the, the elected person who's also running for an office. So I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, a sticky widget. And, you know, it's also worth noting, again, there are already uh, caucuses that are in place that are allowed to raise money through the yes. General Assembly. So if the, if the governor, the speaker, or others who direct funds into those caucuses want to direct them uh, for their reelection or for their reelection and support of other candidates, those, those vehicles are already in existence. Well, this is a big, uh, big session this time, Bill, because I get to, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, say something twice this time, because uh, about a month and a half ago, uh, the Georgia House appointed me uh, as a member of the state election board. And any time there's a dispute, a legal dispute over these sort of things, uh, we get sued. Uh, and, and I've already had the process server come to my door a few times. Already, and so I imagine if something gets passed, I'll see uh, that process server again, and I will serve him coffee. Uh, you know, fairness is always in the eyes of the beholder, and a lot of times you sort of have to look at these sort of contests with, with crocodile tears. The main thing is as you enter into an election year to have the rules set in place so everybody knows uh, what the rules are as they go forward because they will always figure out ways to raise the money that they need. I will say this, as, as someone who did serve in the House, I, I sometimes question why a, a challenger could raise money during the General Assembly, but, uh, but the office holder could not. Uh, I do know that there are different reasons there, but in terms of fairness, I always did sort of question why that uh, was permitted. Um, and so we just have to go from here. Uh, and as a member of the State Election Board, I look forward to uh, to hearing the, the arguments on both sides. Thanks for pointing. You know, I've been meaning in introducing you on the show for weeks to congratulate you, I think. Yeah. Congratulations on your uh, it, appointment it, to the board. Well, congratulations <laughs> is the right word. I, I am a great believer that if uh, someone offers you a job and you accept, you don't whine about it. Uh, so I am looking forward to it. This will be an interesting election year, and and I hope to help be part of the process in which folks feel like if they want to vote, they can vote. And at the end of the day, when the votes are counted, everybody on both sides believes that it uh, that, that it was an accurate result. And that's my only All opinion right. on that board. Uh, uh, Sonia Halpern, you're welcome to weigh in on this if you'd like to take a moment to do it. I do want to ask you a different question, but but go ahead and weigh in on the uh, on, on this notion of. Uh, challengers not being able to raise money. Yeah, I, I think both Howard and Edward kind of said where I'm at. It's a, it's a complicated issue. I, I, I will say that the part that makes me laugh is that politics does make for strange bedfellows. So I, I do find it so amusing in a way that um, both Stacey Abrams and David Perdue are both uh, on, on the same side of this issue. Okay, um, we're, we're very short on time, and, and as I said at the start of the show, we're on the air live at 9 in the morning. Uh, by 2 this afternoon when the show is rebroadcast, we may have a verdict in the uh, trial uh, in Brunswick. Don't know that, of course. Um, Sonia, let me ask you first. Uh, we know that the feds were more than willing to t give a plea deal to the McMichaels and Roddy Bryan, but, um, but 
uh, Ahmad Arbery's mother and father both were insistent that a trial had to go forward because the racist intentions that led to the murders needed to be fully aired. Now that's happened, though, that we've seen all the evidence. It, it, your thoughts first on whether it's been healthy and helpful to lay all that out there. Um, and if we don't get a verdict of guilty on the hate crimes charge, what is there an implication to that? Yeah, lots of implications, I think, if we don't, particularly for folks like myself who are African-American who look at the tweets, who look at the language that had been used on a fairly consistent basis over over a, a long time. And it's difficult for me to imagine that they were not motivated by race because, you know, they did not grab a phone and call the police and they had no real reason to believe that Ahmad Arbery was doing anything that was worth killing him about, yet that was their instinct. That was their instinct. Um, so lots of implications with this decision. And I would say as the as the decision in the in the other case was as well. Lots of people waiting, you know, kind of breathlessly to see what's gonna happen there. It's been important to show it though. I think that these are the kinds of conversations that we do need to have in this country. I think this is the kind of, of example that, that allows people to understand what those experiences are and how they may differ and also to spell out what is and what is not acceptable um, and reframe that for everybody. Um, the, the difficult discussions are, are exactly what we should be contemplating. And I think a lot of times we try to float that over, but this is what we need if we're going to actually advance as a country. Howard? Yeah, I just want to echo uh, Senator Halpern. You know, two things I think I'd like to say here. One is just the process of going through this trial, I think, has been really important. And it, it really, I think, it's made a lot of people, I, I know I've got colleagues and friends who I've talked to about it, um, who've really come to appreciate both conscious and subconscious bias. Uh, and, you know, so much of that is illustrated in the, you know, the language and the actions and the, the timelines that we saw borne out in uh, in those actions on that faithful day. So I, I do think it's important. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm expecting there to be more of these or more of Americans to really engage in this conversation fully. But then I, I'd also just say, you know, and this is for good or for bad, but certainly going to be true in the next eight or nine months. I mean, these sorts of flashpoints keep Georgia at the center of a national debate, whether it's some of the wedge issues that we've seen put forward, um, like Tamar mentioned, around, you know, gender and gender identity in sports, whether it's, you know, trials like these and obviously, uh, you know, these hotly contested, you know, hard-fought battles, both at the primary level and in the general elections. I just think Georgia is just going to be the, the center of the universe. I, I can't say it often enough. I, I don't think we've even seen how brightly the sun can burn uh, in this state. Howard, I've got to interrupt you because we're completely out of time, but we just got word that a verdict has been reached in the trial. It is going to be read at 1030 uh, this morning. So we will soon know what the outcome is of that hate crimes trial in Brunswick. Um, Howard Franklin, uh, Senator Sonia Halpern, Edward Lindsay, and Tamar Hallerman, thank you. That was a wonderful conversation uh, this morning, and I appreciate it that you were all here uh, to offer such, such smart analysis.
That's it for us today. We'll be back, of course, with a brand new show tomorrow. We'll have all the news about the verdict down there in Brunswick on all things considered later today and talk about it on our show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.